Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Wild Connection. This week, I'm continuing our conversation about COP26, you know, that big climate change meeting that happened in Glasgow that was going to keep us at 1.5. Well, we're not going to be kept at 1.5. And there were a lot of developments that happened at COP26, a lot of big sweeping statements and commitments that were made. I talked a little bit about those in last week's episode, but there were also some things that weren't talked about that weren't front and center. Some of the things I noticed were there was no real conversation about education, food security. That was another one that was missing and mental health. Mental health was missing, but it wasn't missing entirely. It wasn't entirely absent though, because one day while I was sitting cross-legged on the floor listening to a presentation by some undergraduate students from the Yeah Network, I met someone. I met psychiatrist Dr. Katherine Kennett, and she was there specifically to talk about and advocate for making mental health part of the conversation, and specifically mental health around the environment. Something that's been coming up in the past maybe 10 years or so has been this term ecological grief. At least that's what I had called it before meeting Dr. Kennett. So what is this ecological grief? It seemed to be directed sort of, it seemed to be talked about in relationship to scientists, something that people like me were going through. And it's really the sadness and the devastation and the loss that we are feeling over losses of species, losses of the environment, maybe even losses of places that are very important to us. There hasn't been a tremendous amount of research on ecological grief, although grief and mourning are something that we talk about with respect to our personal lives. We haven't really thought about it in terms of environmental change. As you'll come to hear in this week's episode from our guest, it's becoming a really important area for psychological inquiry. It's something that we're being called upon to pay attention to. So when we think about grief, this is a natural human response to loss, and it's not just restricted to humans. Other species experience grief. And so I sort of think that it's not just humans that are experiencing ecological or environmental grief and loss, but that other animals are too. One thing that also emerged in the COP26 is that this loss that people are experiencing in relationship to the environment isn't felt equally. There are disenfranchised groups and there are disenfranchised communities and there are disenfranchised countries that are experiencing losses at a much higher rate than many others are. For someone like me, a scientist who studies wildlife, the grief I experience is in some sense current grief. So species that are being devastated and impacted by climate change now, and anticipatory grief. What I know is coming and what I know will be lost. I know, for example, that I may never see a polar bear because the reality is polar bears are done. They're going to last however much longer they're going to last, and then they're done. So I may never see one. I may never see a gorilla in the wild. I may never see a tiger in the wild. And thousands and thousands of other species that I may never get to lay my eyes on, some of which I've always hoped to see one day. 
But then that bigger loss of they've lost the right to have their lives. So as much as the environment and ecology and habitat is a human rights issue, I think it's also a wildlife rights issue. I'll talk about that more at the end. But for now, let's get it going. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this wild and crazy thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. If you like the show, please subscribe to it so you never miss an episode. As I mentioned last week, I think that we need to expand our sites beyond COP26 and any other kinds of conferences. And in fact, expand it by narrowing it down to our communities. This week's guest is Dr. Katherine Kennett, a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and she is also the social prescribing lead at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. We're going to talk more about what social prescribing is during the podcast and talk about how climate change currently and in the future is impacting people psychologically, how that is in itself a health crisis. And we also have to think about how this is impacting the next generation in terms of their mental health. The reality is that our connection to nature or lack thereof is integral to all aspects of human health. And it leads to something we call in ecosystem services language, sort of uh, non-economic services like inspiration, learning, physical experiences, psychological well-being, and identities, our cultural identity, our cultural or community identity. And these things are hard to measure, but our well-being, our mental and physical well-being is completely tied to all the other species that are here on earth. And Dr. Catherine Kennett is going to talk to us about all of these things. Everybody, I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Catherine Kennett to the show, coming to us live from London. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, you are a psychiatrist. I am, yes. And we, and, and you're not on the show to help me. Um, just, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we met sitting cross legged on the floor at COP26, listening to students from the yeah network and uh you know i felt like i was back in university because they gave us an assignment to talk about three things we thought we could do to take action against climate change and so what i wanted uh first to talk to you about before we dive into some of your incredibly important work on mental health and the climate crisis why were you at cop 26 well, I was there with the Royal College of Psychiatrists, so I do quite a lot of work with them on the climate crisis and biodiversity loss and how it affects mental health. And we have been advocating for the inclusion, really, of the impacts 
on mental health of climate change, which are huge, and I'm sure we will get to later in this in this podcast. Um, but there's been really not very much visibility until quite recently on the impacts of mental health on health, and there has been basically none on mental health. So we went a group of psychiatrists from the Royal College of Psychiatry, psychiatrists in London, and we went over to really advocate for mental health, to remind those there that mental health matters and it's hugely linked to climate change, but also to let our members, so psychiatrists in the UK and also around the world who are members of our organisation, we feel it's really important that they know what's being discussed and to be honest, what isn't being discussed, what's being left out of the conversation in terms of mental health and climate change. So we were there to be the eyes and ears for our members of what's being discussed to what isn't being discussed. And we were there to remind and to advocate mental health. And we're also there, because I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist by trade, we're also there to think about the particular impacts on young people, which was very present, I thought, the COP. That's right. Yeah, young people were very uh, vocal and active and really trying to let their voices be heard in this particular COP. Before we sort of dive into the ways in which mental health, we are seeing mental health be impacted and the ways we're anticipating mental health might be impacted in the future with respect to climate change. Did you get the opportunity to really see mental health even talked about at all at this COP? Oh, that's an interesting question. So I guess my big answer is mainly no, but there was for the first time ever at this COP, there was a health stand. There was a WHO stand, which I was shocked hasn't been at any COPs before. And we at the Royal College of Psychiatrists had an event there on mental health. Um, and we, we brought it in a lot, actually. Whenever there was discussion about health, we were there to try and bring it in. And I was really impressed with how receptive people were but it was very much a, oh, I hadn't thought of that, which is actually terrifying. If you're thinking about who's at COP, what's being discussed there, we're thinking about global impacts of global burden of disease. You know, you feel like shouting, why has no one thought about this? What's going on? Right. Yeah, because what's really been discussed largely is sort of the economic impacts, the agricultural impacts. Um, and I think, you know, I was interested to see that, and I don't know if it was present at previous COPs because this was my first time. I don't know. Was this your first time? It was my first time too. It was my first time too. I've done a lot of work with people who've been at lots of others. So I kind of felt I knew what to expect. Okay. So it was my first time there. Yeah. So I was really happy to at least see the conversation about gender equity happening. Like they devoted a whole day to it because, of course, and we'll talk about this where because it applies to mental health as well, the disproportionate impacts on marginalized groups, whether you're mm -hmm. talking about youth, elderly, women, and I would argue wildlife. Um, I'm going to throw wildlife into the marginalized group category. What for you, beyond what your particular area of interest is and your passion, you know, what was your impression overall about the, the COP26? What did you leave feeling about what was happening? That's a good question. I think I left with a lot of emotions um, and a lot of thoughts. One was kind of shock and horror, actually, because I think I sit in my little silo, my mental health silo. I feel very, you know, one of the things we always say to young people who are having climate anxiety or eco distress, when they're feeling overwhelmed, we say, do what you can, start small, do what you can achieve, and you'll feel more empowered, more powerful, less overwhelmed. And I'm in my little silo, and I'm doing what I can, and I'm writing my reports, and I'm seeing my patients, and I'm, you know, doing my interviews, whatever I'm doing. 
and it makes me feel somewhat in control. I think being faced with all the other impacts, the economic, you know, environmental in the truest sense, I think those things I don't always think about so much. I don't think any of them were a shock in terms of the facts, but the sheer volume of impacts and things that I'm not faced with every day. So actually the gender stuff is very relevant to my work. So that I found brilliant that it was being talked about, obviously devastating in terms of the stats and the figures. Um, But to hear the rest of it, I think felt quite shocking to come face to face with that. I guess with everybody there, pretty much having as much passion and drive and fire in them as I do about mental health, about all their different areas, that was quite shocking. I think part of me felt quite optimistic to have spent so long in the company of people who get it, who get, actually, this is an emergency. We need to do something yesterday, not tomorrow. And this has, this is serious, this is seriously serious. And then I guess part of me was quite disappointed that actually all those people, all that science, all that energy, all that focus, the outcome, I think, was fairly disappointing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, I'm not surprised, given your expertise in your field, that you're holding many different emotions at the same time. (laughs) I've only recently learned you can feel many feelings all at once about the same kind of situation. And, you know, I went and I felt disheartened to, at the sheer scale of the problem. And I felt frustrated realizing that, you know, it was at some level very similar to any kind of conference where everybody's arguing about the definition of a word, right? And people and wildlife are suffering. And then I also felt optimistic because I met so many incredible people who were really pushing for innovative solutions that have an enormous impact. And so, you know, similarly to you, and I did notice things were missing. So when I met you, I thought, oh gosh, yeah, mental health. And it's so interesting because it hadn't occurred to me, even though I would say I experienced what I also read in a, a, a wonderful white paper put out by the Royal College of Psychiatrists. I don't know if that's how we should call it a white paper. Um, yeah, it's our position statement, but we'll call it yeah. whatever you want. As long as it's okay. being read, I'm happy. Position statement. And I'm going to post um, a link to it or a copy of it in the show notes so folks can, can take a look at it. And I want to talk more about it, but ecological grief. And so the, this is what hits me square in the gut when I, you know, because my passion is wildlife and, and, and other species, not that humans don't matter. I mean, we do, <laughs> but, but I consider them a marginalized group and, and the, the knowledge of the losses that we're currently experiencing, the species that, that many people will never see in the future is, and, and, and not only that, but for the, just the loss of that, that animal on this earth is devastating to me. And, it's only recently that it's sort of realizing, I'm realizing this is upsetting me and I don't know what to do with that feeling, right? So I think well, even when I met you, I was like, gosh, yeah, we're not even talking about mental health. We talk about food security, we talk about water, we talk about you know uh, migration of, of humans uh, when we lose, when sea level rise comes, coastal populations are gonna be migrating, but we don't talk about how that impacts them emotionally or psychologically. So can you talk a little bit about some of those, you know, big picture kinds of responses, stress responses that you might be seeing uh, happen already or that we're anticipating are going to happen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's 
So I guess there's two, in my mind, there's two different things, right? There's the grief you spoke about, what we sometimes call eco-distress. Um, and that's often talked about as being felt by young people. It's being felt by everybody, not everybody, but people of all ages. Um, I think young people are a little bit more in some ways because actually they're the first generation who've grown up, young people and children at the moment are the first generation who've grown up who have never known a world that isn't in, in serious existential threat, right? Serious yeah. danger. Um, and that we're always really clear to say, and I want to say it now, it's not a disease, it's not a pathology, there's nothing wrong. That is a totally sensible response to a really balmy situation that we find ourselves in um that mourning that grief that distress is totally appropriate um in terms of sort of psychiatry when we get involved I, I see that as part of distress in young people I certainly would never start treating that in young people um I'd give advice as we said earlier around um doing what you can talking to people the people around those young people or those adults who are feeling that way to listen to not try and say it's okay everything will be fine because it's not that's the point we need to start doing stuff doing small things close to home making a difference in in whatever small way you can and then things feel less overwhelming and taking a break as well not feeling it's your responsibility to do everything so I guess that's one part of it but the and, and to me, that's kind of a red herring. It's important, but actually that's just a warning of all the stuff that's happening, the physical changes that are happening. And that to me is where the real mental health crisis lies. So, so many, so many different things you can talk about there, but just to give you a few examples. So floods, so floods are increasing. We know that. On the train up to COP, I was reading the latest IPCC report again. I don't know if you've read it recently, but oh my goodness, it is devastating. Looking at the trajectory of even 1.5, if we keep to 1.5, what the massive increase in floods, you know, extreme weather events, droughts, all of these things, they're going to increase. They're already increasing. And the, you know, the, the whole time I was at COP, I was thinking they're talking about 1.5 as this ideal let's keep it to 1.5 can we possibly do that and having just read that report thinking oh my goodness this if we just keep it to this devastating level it's horrendous so I guess with that in mind it's helpful to think about the different effects do you have flooding so flooding is happening quite a lot um it's going to be happening more and in terms of the stats and the figures we know that has an enormous effect on mental health so as with all things with mental health it's not that if you are flooded you will definitely have a mental health problem but we know that if you if your home is flooded if you have flood water in your home then one year later you are much more likely to have a mental health problem so for example if you have flood water in your home a year later you're 20 percent more likely to have depression than if you didn't you're 28.3 percent more likely to have an anxiety disorder and you're 36 percent likely to have PTSD. That's pretty bad. And we're not talking about a little bit of distress here. We're talking about clinically diagnosed PTSD. So flashbacks, nightmares, hypervigilance, that's being really jumpy, not really able to function. We're talking about these things at a clinical level. So really, really unwell. And you're also much more likely to have um, mental health impacts from flooding a year later than that. So two years after the event. So we're talking about really quite devastating impacts and it might seem I guess obvious or clear that if you might have a bit more anxiety or a bit more depression but if for example you're a child living in a household where the mother is depressed because she's just been flooded and there's loads of things to sort out then actually that has a massive effect in terms of your development if you're a child living in a house for example where your primary caregiver mother father whoever it is is having a psychological or mental health crisis that's going to affect your trajectory 
forever. <laughs> That's massive. We're talking about intergenerational impacts. And this is flooding. This is one of the lowest uh, levels of, of of impact in terms of actual devastation. Uh, devastation, you know, things are lost and in floods, and and material goods are, are destroyed. And and in the sort of global north, where this data comes from, those data sets I was quoting, don't tend to get dramatic loss of life. Obviously, in the global south, we're talking devastating impacts. We're talking loss of life as well as loss of property unlikely to have insurance in some places you know really devastating effects and then you end up with increased numbers of orphans you end up with people who've gone through this big trauma so just with flooding you can see how devastating the impacts are and there are loads more so cyclones hurricanes those kind of events very similar things like droughts i mean in terms of food security it's just massive in terms of um coastal areas being lost and vulnerable populations again devastating in terms of identity depression ptsd anxiety there's also heat heat is a bit of a weird one there's a really clear association so the higher the temperature the higher the levels of all cause mortality so so all cause death basically and there's a link with completed suicide so the, the higher the temperature above the baseline of what we're expecting in a, in, a, in a location, the higher the chance of completed suicide. We don't actually know why, but that keeps coming back. Wow. I mean, you know, I just want to, you know, let that sit for a minute because, you know, there are communities that are already experiencing these events. And I, you know, when you were talking, I was thinking about wildfires in this past year, because they're another one. And, and yes, you lose property, but, but when you mentioned identity, you know, that village in British Columbia that just exploded, essentially, it it just combusted. The, the entire village is gone. And so you haven't just lost your home and maybe lost people that were in your family uh, who died, but now you've lost your entire community and your sense of place, which is really important for many people. And just sort of thinking about that kind of trauma, you know, what and, and I'm very curious about the heat and suicide link. That's that's really startling to me. I've never I've never heard that. And so we might want to circle back to that. But but just sort of thinking about identity and place, you know, what because we don't we don't think about how do we help people, right, who are experience and undergo such an enormous trauma. And then, as you said, you know, intergenerational trauma, like we already know the science is there that generations later, it, it's even encoded into your genetics, the, the trauma, even if it's starvation, something as simple as starvation um, is coded into the next generation's genes and the the emotional trauma, not not necessarily the physical trauma, but it's like a physical change happens as a function of an emotional trauma. So, so what can we, what, what are the sort of guidelines or the prescriptions, if you will, not in terms of pills, right? But what are the prescriptions for how we can start to address what is happening to people and what is gonna continue happening to people? really good question so the so the there are four sustainable principles of mental health care and they kind of guide the response and guide what we say um the first one is prevention that's the most important thing and that's what you touched on there right so the most important thing is we prevent these issues and this is not just for climate impacts on mental health this is about all mental health and actually all health this is how we this is how we practice medicine or mental health care sustainably 
so we prevent prevention is so much better than cure um so what we want to do is put our resources take our public health seriously and put our resources into prevention so what does that mean that means taking climate change seriously on an international level and and being a cop advocating and actually having a reasonable outcome that looks at 1.5 being the best case scenario not the worst you know being what we're aiming for and actually making it happen the next one is reducing waste so that's like when we give when we're treating people we don't want to be wasteful so in the uk apparently over half i think it's two-thirds of prescriptions that are given are not fully taken which means that we are giving people medicine that they are not taking and when you explore that it's because actually usually it's to do with people's belief in it working the kind of taking the time to to explain to somebody what that prescription is for why it's important why they should finish the dose all of those things so it's about education um, and about really taking the time to do that well and only prescribe if it's needed and that goes with any kind of health intervention the next one's empowerment. So it's empowerment of staff who are giving healthcare, but also empowerment of those receiving healthcare. That's really important too. So the fourth one is value. So what you're actually giving needs to have high value and has to be valued. And we have to think about giving what actually works. So I guess those are our guiding principles. Um, and I guess at the core of it is prevention. We have to be preventing this and we have to have reasonable mental health care that's there to provide for when people need this, this, you know, these interventions and treatment. I guess the other thing that's really important is about, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this as a social prescribing lead for the Royal College of Psychiatrists, is social prescribing. So that's what that is, is that's connecting individuals to groups in their community that usually already exist. And most of those are based in nature, or certainly many of them are. The idea behind that is it's not instead of any other kind of mental health care. If someone needs meds, they still need meds. Someone needs talking therapy, they still need talking therapy. If they need occupational therapy, they still need occupational therapy. But this is an add-on where basically you're giving somebody full empowerment to choose something they enjoy usually time in nature or doing a sport or learning a craft with people in their community and that's something truly empowering no one's going to force you to do that you have to choose to do it and I think that gives you a sense and a a sense of nature and how important it is it gives you a sense of valuing it it gives you a sense of doing something about it if you're in a group that's I don't know looking after an allotment or looking after I don't know a forest area or something which many of the groups are so that I mean social prescribing in its truest sense hits all four of those you're preventing further relapse and promoting mental health care it's a high value resource there's no waste involved and it's empowering so that's a really nice example of what we can be prescribing yeah that's you know so i'm i'm so glad you explained what that was because i wasn't really sure when i was reading um the position uh paper and something i did read struck me it said by restoring connections with nature greater ecological concern and sustainable behavior can be promoted while improving well-being. And that is the entire purpose of this podcast. And and so can we talk a little bit about the science behind being in nature and improving our mental health and even physical well-being? So we know that Physiologically, your blood pressure improves, your your heart rate can go down. There, you know, you recover from surgeries faster if you are just looking at a picture of nature without even being it's amazing, in. isn't it? It yeah. is. So so can you talk a bit about why or the science behind or what we know about being in nature and our our psychological well-being? 
Yes, I mean, frustratingly, we don't know the mechanisms. So we don't really know the science of it. And that goes to the physical health side, which we've known about a lot longer, actually, than the mental health side. But what we do know is consistently, um, it's coming back that spending time in nature is good for your mental health. So it makes recovery a bit quicker for mental illness. It makes um, relapse prevention better. So that, again, again, the, the nature-based interventions are not a replacement. So they're not instead of medication if you need medication, talking therapies if you need talking therapies, or occupational supports. That's meaningful occupation. But they are a very good add-on, and they help you recover quicker and help you be more well in your mental health. Like if you have a really a severe and enduring mental illness and you're really unwell, spending time in nature is not going to make you completely well overnight. But it is certainly going to help you get better quicker, we think, in most situations. And yeah, we don't know why. But I don't think it's surprising. I mean, purely with my sort of speculative hat on here and not my sort of uh, medical doctor hat on, I think it makes sense. We've evolved as humans to be in nature. That's what we are used to. That's what we've evolved to thrive in. So just because the last, what, 10, 15, 20 generations have been indoors, making these very solid, non-nature-filled dwellings, we don't evolve that quickly, in my mind. You know, we, we have we have grown as a species to be in nature. And actually, it doesn't surprise me at all that being in nature helps our mental health and our well-being and protects us. Yeah. So I, I love that you said that because I find that our cultural evolution has outpaced our biological evolution. And we have constructed a life, a society that that doesn't match our our heritage if you will and i can't speak for other people i mean obviously many people i know also find their well-being is improved by being in nature but i used to call it like forest gumping um <laughs> i still do so whenever i'm struggling with something in my life or a situation i go for a walk and sometimes i walk eight miles and that is you know the the, the length of my walk is directly proportional to the <laughs> to the distress i'm experiencing um and if i don't walk i feel like like uh, something's not right because it's not just being out in nature for me it's I see the animals and and sometimes that's upsetting because something bad has happened to an animal but but usually it's uh, heartwarming and I feel all is right in the world when I am out in nature and see wildlife going about their day making a living dealing with their problems in their very animal way so yesterday morning I went out, it was a bit chilly and there was a squirrel and the squirrel was just huddled, you know, and I could imagine a person huddled and it was huddled on the branch trying to catch a piece of sun and its tail was, you know, over its body and, and it just stopped for a minute. And, you know, I know I'm talking to a psychiatrist, but I talked to the squirrel and I say, uh, I know it's chilly out. It's OK. It'll warm up. Just, you know, scoot a little to the left. The sun is going to come. And it was just, uh, you know, or, or, or watching a squirrel and hearing it eat a nut really noisily and imagining that it's just enjoying this nut, you know, so thoroughly. And, and those things kind of create balance in whatever's going on. And so I think that we are so disconnected from the way that we have evolved to live. And yet many people don't feel any kind of crisis at all. 
you know, the research from the Yale program on climate change, at least in the United States, which I know you're in the UK, but, and I don't know if it's the same there. There's, there's sort of these sort of a range of attitudes, like completely dismissive to completely alarmed. And, and mm-hmm. I spoke to, you know, I tried to talk to many people in Glasgow and Edinburgh and Aberdeen where I went around, um, all over Scotland and, and get their take on, what they think is the problem. And they, you know, everybody's talking about this like it's a problem. Everything is fine. I think it's just all overblown. And others going, oh, we're doomed. We're completely doomed. So there's nothing to do. You just get what you can for as long as you can. What do you think is behind this psychological distance from the crisis? Well, I, I think there's a, there's a few things to say about that. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because um, someone I once knew used to say to me about about uh, somebody they knew, she's the kind of woman who doesn't realise she's a feminist yet. And I think that's the kind of attitude, actually, I love that phrase. I think it's the kind of attitude that actually, you know, it's the same thing. You know, you have people who are climate activists and passionate about the climate and feel like something, as you say, feel like we're doomed. And then you have people who haven't realised it yet. Because actually the science isn't, ambivalent the science is 100% certain we know where we are we know where we're most likely to be going and it's bad (laughs) unless we do something and we do something big and now but actually I think it's a human emotion to be overwhelmed and actually this is an existential threat this is a threat not just to our life but to our planet and not just to us but to nature to many species to most civilizations this is massive so it's totally understandable psychological psychologically actually it's it's probably expected psychologically that we go you know we put our fingers in our ears and go la 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 I'm looking the other way and I I actually think that's, that's kind of expected it's a bit like I often think there's a massive correlation or a massive similarity with smoking so like smoking started right before we knew there was a that was dangerous for your health. Actually, doctors would recommend it and say, okay, have a cigarette, it will clear your lungs. Um, and then it became, do you not know that? Yeah. That was, <laughs> I did yeah. not know that. Yeah. Wow. Initially it was sold as like something almost medicinal and it would be recommended. And on the adverts, they would say so many doctors recommend smoking. Then it became really quite clear after some very impressive epidemiological work that smoking was really, really bad and led to pretty much led to death in most situations um but people still smoke now why is that is that because people don't know about it i don't think so what's going on so when somebody who is has full awareness of how dangerous it is for you puts a cigarette to their mouth and inhales what is happening for them in that moment and what's happening is something called cognitive dissonance they are just putting up a wall because it's just too painful because how could you possibly entertain the idea that you are choosing you're spending money on something and choosing to do something that is harming you yet a lot of people do it and I'm not criticizing them at all it's a it's a known phenomenon and it's something that as humans we do and I think the same is happening with the climate crisis for those people where it's just too scary and painful they put their hands over their ears and look the other way and there's lots of places to look the other way you know in the global north most impacts of climate change are periodic they're well encapsulated they're quite far away unless you happen to be somewhere where there's a wildfire or there's a flood or you're, you know most in the global north that's possible in the global south i was hearing at cop just how little education there is about the impacts of climate change and where they come from so people know there's droughts and floods but they don't necessarily they're not being told why 
and where the links come from. So that makes total sense to me why actually a lot of people are not, not able to either face what's happening or aren't given the privileged knowledge to know what's happening. And I think we need to take that really seriously. We need to be educating our young people, educating our adults. Um, and I guess the other thing is where, where young people are so important is that for many of them, this isn't a revelation. They haven't got to a certain age and thought, oh my goodness, what are we doing? And like woken up, they've grown up with it. So for them, this is not something that feels like a big change to get your head around. It's just the reality of the world, which is horribly sad, but it also is quite hopeful that actually if, it, if most young people don't have to go through this process of really challenging their most fundamental thoughts about what is and isn't okay and what is and isn't happening and what is and isn't safe then actually I hope we're going to be in a much stronger position to take this without each person having to go through a full existential internal debate. Okay wow there's so much there's so many threads to pull on that I, I really appreciated the connection between cigarette smoking and climate crisis, and maybe for an unexpected reason, because I think that our addiction to certain distractions is what leads to us not being willing to change our behavior. And so I say that also as a former smoker, I'm going to make a confession. <laughs> I used to smoke. I smoked for a long time. I've been I quit a long time ago as well. I started young because my family, you know, smoked and my grandmother smoked for 80 years almost. Right? And like, so to me, it, it didn't seem like a harmful thing. And it's incredibly addictive. And then I had that same cognitive dissonance, but there was a desire to change. I, I wanted to stop. And yet I kept trying I couldn't stop. And so then there was this cycle of what I think happens also for people when it comes to consumption of resources and what is really required to, if we're even going to come close to keeping it at 1.5, uh, they don't know how to function without the, the drug of the convenience of their cars or, you know, everybody's going shopping at Christmas now. And I'm thinking, couldn't we just have like a global agreement that we don't need more stuff? Like we actually don't, you don't need the toy. You don't need those things. Um, but anyway, I, I failed epically at quitting smoking for many, you know, probably two or three years. Um, and then through the good fortune of evolution, um, having this wonderful protective mechanism where, you know, if you eat something for the first time that's really makes you very, very ill, you never eat it again. It's got to make you really sick. So I got appendicitis and the cigarette I smoked before I went to the hospital was the most, it's probably what cigarettes actually tasted like. It was so vile. I've never smoked again. I instantly quit. And that was 13 years ago. I worry that people won't change until they have some force that is so powerful that it can overcome the, the, the need because people will say, oh yeah, gosh, this climate thing is terrible, you know? And either I find they, they think, well, I mean, I could stop using straws, but I don't really feel like that's going to make a difference. And so what's the point? Or they could change their life completely, but then you continue looking around at the world around you 
going on about it, their life the same as business as usual. And you wonder, well, well, my stopping all of this is making no difference because I'm just one person. And so, uh, and then you have the other group that is like, I am not willing to give up my car. I want to go out shopping and have as many things as I want to have. And I'm entitled to do that. And there's no problem. Everybody's just trying to control me. So, so, you know, what do you do to get mass cooperation around the world to give up our addiction to stuff? Well, I, I kind of, I'm going to answer a slightly different question. I'm going to be okay. sneaky and do the politician trick of, of answering a slightly different question. But I feel like there's a clue in what we were talking about earlier, which is that actually people feel better in more natural spaces and people feel good when they're connecting to nature. And actually, I think that's kind of our, our thread we need to pull on because actually if we can design societies or tweak societies or nudge societies into greener spaces or spaces that are more climate conscious, then actually we don't have to be using the stick. We can be using the carrot. So actually, if you have a city that's greener and been thought about and and it's designed to make walking, cycling safe, um, you know, affordable, easy to get around, then actually it's not a big sacrifice. It's not, okay, I need to give up my car. Actually, it's it's the easy, natural thing to do. And what I like about that is that, so, so full disclosure here, I have a car. I have to do on-call shifts for my job. So sometimes I have to go into central London in the middle of the night. I'm a woman and I'm quite little <laughs> and I don't feel safe on the London transport system at nighttime without it. So I have a car for that reason and I use it for that reason. And I actually don't feel guilty or hurt, like ashamed or anything about that because I think it's about equity and equality, right? It's about giving the people who need something, the resources, and the others who don't necessarily need it, not having it. And the easiest way to do that is to make a society where actually it's easier not to use it. Right. So I am very lucky. I live in a city that has a phenomenal transport system. So I use that most of the time. I walk or I get the bus or I get the tube. But actually, in the middle of the night, when I'm called to see a child who's really unwell in in the emergency department, I'm going to drive and I'm okay with that. That's good. That's that's best for me. And I think it's about all of us making those choices and and society making it easy, you know, for me to go to the shop. If there's a shop 10 minutes away and I can walk there, which in London you can, which is really lucky then that's what I'm going to do because it's more convenient than sitting in my car in traffic for 40 minutes to get a big a whole load of shopping, you know, once, whatever, once a week or every day. So I think that's the secret. I think healthcare is the same. With healthcare, it's not about saying, here, look, it's a green and less good alternative. It's about saying, this is something even better. This is a you know, gold standard, but like even better. It's a gold standard plus, plus, plus. It's a gold standard that involves green care, preventative medicine, nature-based care, but as well as providing all the best bits of the other stuff. And what's so frustrating slash optimistic, depending on your viewpoint, is we have the tech for most of this stuff. We ha- Like they've been saying for years, we have enough food to feed the world. It's just yeah. not done in a, you know, in a proportional fair way. And I know that's a very idealistic thing to say, but I think it's the same with the climate. We have most of the tech, actually. If we really wanted to, and by we, I mean sort of societally, if the will was there, then we could have sustainable, uh, renewable energies covering most of our needs, if not all. 
Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's so many alternatives to plastic, all of the different things like this. And actually, then we could use those resources that are scarce and should be valued as they need to, like me with my car at night. Absolutely. Well, and and so, you know, I think the struggle I have is I think individually people would say, yeah, you know, I want a biophilic city, right? A city that um, loves nature, that sets it up. I mean, the mayor of Austin was at COP26 and Austin is one of a collection of biophilic cities around the world that invests heavily into um, they even give away free fruit trees uh, to neighborhoods um, that don't have trees, right? So I love that, you know, putting f- trees and plants that grow food for people is amazing. Uh, and there are, you know, all you can do that along small strips of, of land or sidewalk grass, turn, get rid of the grass and plant tomato plants, you know, um, for people to pick a tomato as they're walking. And so I think that there are cities that do that and people gravitate to those cities, I'm wondering if there isn't really good messaging of the reason you feel good here, the reason that you like this is because it's doing these things and how can we take that from community to community to community? So, you know, one of the things I tell my students is, you know, if you wait for corporations and governments to do the right thing, uh, you're gonna be waiting a really long time. And so, so I'm wondering in the social prescribing, I want to kind of circle back to that. You know, how do you find those organizations that are nature based or how can we make a shift in our community so that we can all feel empowered? Because I think some of the eco distress, including eco anxiety that, that we talked about is feeling um, out of control. Like you have no power, uh, right. To, to make an impact. And, you know, some, proportion of people are going to feel anxious and some are just going to give up. And, and so how can we make shifts in our own communities? Because if we all did that individually, then every community would start to become a biophilic community. It's a really interesting question. And actually the sort of the the evolution of social prescribing in the UK is kind of answered that question. I think the social prescribing has happened from the ground up in the UK. So what's happened is you have these, um, all pretty much all communities have groups. That's just kind of a natural thing that happens. Um, so because so I work with young people, I'm more aware of what's sort of available for young people in my community. So there's theatre groups, there's healthy like allotment growing, vegetable growing groups that then young people are taught how to use those vegetables for healthy eating. There's like taekwondo and like other like sporty slash martial arts things. There's some arty stuff. There were some tutorial type videos on YouTube that people would come in together and watch um, from their homes in lockdown and sort of stream things together and comment. There's lots of different things for young people. But most of those things exist without the umbrella of social prescribing. They just exist. And the, the problem that was happening was that people didn't know what was happening in their own communities. There are different models. The most popular one in the UK is that we have individuals called link workers who are linked to our general practitioners who will be in a community and it's they're not like doctors or nurses they often have quite a lot of life experience they're often quite good at talking to people and listening and what their job is is to know what's in the in the local community and the idea is that if I as a psychiatrist or one of my colleagues in general practice or pediatrics or wherever or a social worker gets to know somebody and thinks or has an assessment with them or a one-off appointment and thinks actually this person could benefit from social prescribing, 
then they um, ask the local link worker in their community to meet up with the individual um, with my patient or whoever it is and then they start by saying what matters to you what would you like to do and then together that link worker will say well in this community we have this and we have this and we have this what would you like to do and then they get introduced that way and they have to be willing to do it and wanting to do it themselves there's absolutely no coercion particularly in mental health we have I wouldn't say we're coercive but sometimes we have to treat people when they're not fully on board if they're very sick so it's really really important that with this aspect of their care it's ring fenced it has to be elected they have to choose to want to do it so what you end up have, having is somebody embedded in the local community where they know exactly what's going on and it's a job to know and to go to these groups and sometimes it might take a person to a group if they're feeling a bit nervous or usually it's just one session but they can have a bit of flexibility so that's how we make it work and actually there's been a few attempts by our sort of national health bodies to to log all of the groups and by the time they started they've changed you know halfway down so they kind of abandoned that a few times and now it's just best done in the community there were a few other models so there was um one not far from me in north london where the gp practice said you know what this is ridiculous we need to have some social staff and some community. Their GP became the. They ended up having um, groups in the practice, in the waiting room, and people would come specially, or they'd just be encouraged to join. We had a garden because it was an old house that was converted, and that garden was the source of groups. And they just kept pulling people in. So that was a very different model where people kind of had to willingly escape the groups to not be part of them. But there was a physical hub in the community, um, which is quite quite a cool way of doing it. So I think. To answer your question, I think it's about having things embedded in the local communities that grow up organically, but feel right, and just having a way of letting people know what's happening. What you just described uh, for me feels very forward thinking. And I would say that one of the things that's missing that I think from many communities in the United States is that there isn't this linkage between mental health providers and community organizations or groups that, and I haven't even heard of social prescribing here. What we do find is sometimes people say, oh, you know, you should find a hobby, that that's like the advice. Find something you like to do. But when people are feeling overwhelmed mental health wise, like, actively like searching for or maybe like even putting yourself out there to to go to a group i love that they can be sort of um assisted to go the first time if they're feeling nervous or that they don't have to do all the work they they can say oh hey what do you like to do well, i like photography great there's a group that's over here right and so here it, it seems much more disconnected from you know really providing good guidance and care for people who are experiencing mental health challenges. It's, it's sort of like, well, what will help you is if you find a group that you can join and do things that you'd like, but the onus is on you to figure out where that is, who that, who they are, and then go. And it's very intimidating. Even if you're a fairly confident person, it's very intimidating to just show up at a, a new group, you know, and, hope it goes well and not feel even more isolated sometimes. So I, I, I am just amazed by the work that you're doing that, that the Royal College of Psychiatrists is doing and all of the, you know, key messages in that, in that position statement, not only about what to do to help people and what is working and what we know we need to keep doing, but also on reducing carbon footprint 
you know, across the facilities and across the college itself. So, so again, Dr. Catherine Kennett, I thank you so much for being here and talking about this and, and thank you for all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for the work you're doing. All right. What a great interview and so much there to ponder and think about and maybe even implement because from a healthcare perspective, I would say that the UK is quite forward thinking with this social prescribing as well as just generally providing mental health care to its citizens as well as medical care. And that's a far cry from what we have here in the United States. I mean, there's some states like Florida. Yes, we're still going to pick on Florida where mental health practitioners don't even want to take insurance. And so even if you have insurance, you can't get mental health care because they refuse to take insurance because they don't want to go through the steps necessary to be certified. It's not because they don't get reimbursed high enough. So we don't really value mental well-being in this country. Another way that the UK is quite forward thinking has to do with wildlife having rights. And this isn't uniformly across the UK, but I'm going to talk specifically about beavers. So in the in, in East Devon, uh, 15 families of beaver were given the permanent right to remain. So they basically were given the right to live, the right to have habitat. And this really was done because Beavers have such a positive impact on the local environment. It's not without controversy. You've got farmers and landowners who still despise the beaver, who feel their crops are going to get ruined because beavers cause flooding. And that's, you know, beavers don't cause flooding. Beavers build dams. Beavers change the flow of water. And this has really important implications in other areas of the world where uh, we're turning to beavers and their massive engineering skills to do a better job with how we move our water around. But I digress. So sometimes because beavers prefer deeper water, they feel safer in deeper water. They do cause localized flooding uh, to other parts of the landscape. They build really complex homes and they are monogamous and they raise their families uh, together. And so in this area, at least, they were given the right to live and be in this habitat. And essentially, um, it was argued by the Devon Wildlife Trust that they are so beneficial. They're natural engineers they really need to have the right to exist in this land. And this is their historic land. And so this is a really interesting case where we're returning land rights back to wildlife. You just go a little bit further over in Scotland and you have a completely different approach where they're giving licenses to farmers to shoot and kill beavers. So it's not to say that the UK is getting everything right, but at least in some parts, they are taking the approach that wildlife have a right to exist and they have a right to habitat. Another move that puts the UK on the forward thinking side is that octopuses, crabs, and lobsters are now being recognized as sentient beings. And 
Now, in science, we've known this all along and they've been protected. You need certain, um, you have to not cause pain. You have to have a justification for doing research. But when it comes to sort of the general public and, and their use as a food source, it is pretty despicable the way that they are handled and treated. And so they're getting welfare protection. There was a UK law that was passed that that basically was the result of scientists, yay scientists, providing strong evidence that they experience pain and distress and harm. And this really needs to be adopted worldwide. And so basically the animal welfare bill will be extended to all um, crustaceans and uh, decapod crustaceans and cephalopod mollusks. So that includes your octopuses. So cephalopod is like head foot, essentially. And again, this is pretty forward thinking, you know, because we know scientifically that they have a, a central nervous system like we do. It's just diffuse. It's throughout all of their appendages when we're talking specifically about um, octopuses. And so hopefully this will be a move that sparks further protections around the world. But going back to this idea that wildlife have rights to exist, I'm going to turn to a country that has a pretty poor track record when it comes to pollution and wasn't the model country um, <laughs> at COP26. However, um, dolphins have been recognized as non-human persons in India since 2017. And, and so they announced a ban of dolphin water parks in 2013. So that would be like if the United States banned SeaWorld, which they should, but that's another podcast. Um, and so they essentially said cetaceans are highly intelligent and sensitive Various scientists who have researched dolphin behavior have suggested that their unusually high intelligence as compared to other animals means that dolphins should be seen as non-human persons and as such have their own specific rights and it's morally unacceptable to keep them captive for entertainment purposes. So dolphins were given non-human rights and this has been extended to non-human primates uh, in very specific cases, whether it's chimpanzees or orangutans like Sandra, the orangutan, and the recently captive elephant that was moved to another location so that they could have a better well-being in captivity. But really what we need to think about is other animals have the right property rights. And this is something that was what was so groundbreaking from the UK with respect to the beavers. I think that we need to consider it's not just other humans' rights who are being trampled by our behavior, but it's wildlife rights are being trampled by our behavior. And I put it to the listener to contemplate that, you know, when let's say an osprey has a nest located in a habitat and one afternoon, a bunch of tractors come in and completely flatten the entire area because that's where a new development is going to go. That osprey, one, has lost its nest, and two, it surveys this area and I believe experiences shock 
and confusion, and for all we know, grief. That's the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. You can find the show notes on my website at jenniferverdlin.com or on Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. I'm going to put in the show notes links to the position paper on climate change and mental well-being put out by the Royal College of Psychiatrists and also a link to the paper that Dr. Catherine Kennett was mentioning about social prescribing because maybe that's something we can expand beyond just the UK. And don't forget, if you're enjoying the show, please give us a like and share it so everyone else can find it too.